blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the good life belongs to those who go and make peace because they will be called heirs of the king. I wanna spend a few minutes, for those of you who like logic, giving you a little bit of a overview of these Beatitudes that we've been going over the past seven weeks. This will be week seven in the Beatitudes. Um, And at this rate, we will be through the book of Matthew by 2027, I believe. (laughs) I haven't counted every verse, but we're going a verse a week at this point, so we'll know the book by the end. Um, So before we jump into this Beatitude, I want to just step back and attempt to kind of outline the logic of the Beatitudes, and I've gotten help here from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British preacher in the middle of the 20th century, and he um, sets it up in a way that makes a lot of sense to me, so I want to just play it out for you and see if it helps you, because it will help us understand really what is being said here by Jesus when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So if we look at the Beatitudes, this is Matthew chapter five, and you find the Beatitudes in verses three, I gotta get there real quick, okay, verses uh, three through 12 are really the Beatitudes. There's seven of them, and then there's this eighth one that gets tacked onto the end that's about three verses long because Jesus really wants us to know this one, and we'll cover that next week. But the first three, Beatitudes one through three, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the meek. These all really signify heart postures before God, before ourselves in our own selves and with others. And really it's, a, it's this heart of submission. So when Jesus says this is what a disciple looks like, it begins with a heart of submission to King Jesus and a heart of understanding our need and, and mourning over our need and then submitting in humility and meekness to him. And then we have this fourth beatitude right there in the middle, number four, verse six, which says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this this one really sits in the middle of two sets of three beatitudes, the first three, and then this one, which, which speaks to transformed heart desires, that we would be people who would hunger and thirst, that the desires of our heart would be towards righteousness. And then out of that flow three more Beatitudes, five through seven, which are pictures of active postures toward God and others. So the first are really heart postures, and and these three are are active, active postures. We're actually doing something, we're taking action. So blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. So this is how kingdom life that starts in our heart gets displayed in a life of discipleship, in a life of apprenticeship to King Jesus. And then beatitude number eight, which we'll hit next week, is really the result. When we live as disciples, as followers of King Jesus in the way that Jesus desires for us to live in these first seven beatitudes, the result will be beatitude number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When we live in a way that doesn't look like the world, how does the world respond? I'm going to let Doc Noer speak about that next week, but we won't get to that yet. No persecution today. So as you see here, the, the, the two sets of three beatitudes, the heart postures, 
uh, and the, the, the second set, the active postures, really have this transformation of our heart desires right in the middle, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So if you take the first beatitude, being poor in spirit, it's this posture of need towards God. Understanding we have nothing to bring to God and that should, should well up in us in a thirst and a hunger for righteousness which gets expressed in beatitude number five, blessed are the merciful. So as we understand our own need for God and he gives us a hunger in that need to be filled with only him, it expresses itself in an active posture of mercy towards those in need. Our need, our hunger drives loving those in need. Secondly, those who mourn. Beatitude number two, blessed are those who mourn. These, these are those who are broken over sin, our own sin, the sin of others, and the sin in the world. We are broken over sin and so we mourn over it. And as we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness to be in the world, for his holiness to be to find a dwelling in our heart and to express itself in the world that is expressed in beatitude number six, and a purity of heart. Blessed are the purity of heart. Blessed are those who have turned from sin and have an active posture of avoidance of sin and bringing righteousness into the world. The third beatitude, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who have a humble posture before God. And as they hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the meek hunger and thirst for righteousness, they become people who make peace. And sometimes they make peace at their own expense, but because life is not about the meek, they are willing to expend themselves so others can be at peace, taking an active posture of reconciliation. All right, that's the logic lesson for this morning. And that helps me to understand how peacemaking flows out of meekness through a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So with that in mind, let's consider this seventh beatitude in Matthew chapter five, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You may recognize the picture on the screen as one of the most famous firearms in history. Does anybody know what that is? Does anybody have one? Anybody? I saw one for $1,800 online this morning, so. Um, it should strike us kind of as ironic that this pistol was, was, it was made in, invented in 1873, uh, was nicknamed the peacemaker, the cult peacemaker, because the way in which it offered to make peace, the, the way in which this gun would end conflict was through a decisive act of violence, right? So namely through the death or the potential death of the person who was on the wrong end of the barrel. That's how peace would be made. In other words, you can end any conflict by disposing of one or both belligerent parties. That makes sense? You got a conflict? You get rid of one, one of one side of the conflict and the conflict's gone, am I correct? Now, of course, some would agree that, that war and violence are both necessary in order for peace to take place in a world like ours. We live in a broken and a fallen world which is overgrown with conflict. And so in this world, the way that the strong keep peace is by carrying a big stick or by carrying, in this case, a big gun and with it, the very real threat of violence or death. And, and the very 
ubiquity of war, the very normalcy of war in our world necessitates, it even assumes that the way to deal with conflict, the way to bring peace is only through violence or through the threat of violence. And amazingly, in in God's sovereignty, the ultimate peacemaker is a person who, in his unmatchable strength, he is the one who carries the biggest stick. Jesus is the one who carries the biggest guns. In his unmatchable strength, he is the one who refused to fight back. He is the one who, for the sake of peace, submitted himself to the murderous and violent hands of sinful men. So does true peace come through violence? Well, it has. And that violence was poured out on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the ultimate peacemaker, which is a title that he earned through his submission. And this act of submission, this act of submitting to the violence of men can only be described by the word meekness. Let's go back to beatitude number three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the world. And in meekness, there's three ways in which Jesus Christ has become our peacemaker in this world. In meekness, first of all, Jesus has made peace between man and God. We read of this in Philippians chapter two, starting at verse five, about Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, being found as one of us, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there we see meekness, we see humility, we see violence poured out on this peacemaker. And Romans 5.1 tells us that now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through that work on the cross, we now have peace with God. That's what God, Jesus does in his meekness, is makes peace between man and God, between you and me and our God. Secondly, Jesus, by taking our sin, by taking our burden, he also takes our anxiety and our brokenness upon himself, and he gives us peace in our own souls. So these famous words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And and I can't imagine Jesus expressing himself, he doesn't in the rest of scripture, he doesn't express himself in his meekness like he does in this passage. It's a beautiful expression of of a God who has become humble and offered to carry our brokenness in him so that we could be whole people, so that we could find peace in our own hearts and our own souls. And then thirdly, Jesus is the peacemaker because in meekness he makes peace between people, between men and women and women and women and men and men. He makes peace amongst us. He offers to make peace and he does make peace between people who should hate each other. And this is what he's done in creating the church. We see this in Ephesians chapter two, starting at verse 13. It says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here Paul is speaking to uh, ethnic Gentiles, those who are not Jews. And in essence, they have been far off from God. They are not the people of God, the chosen people of God, the Jews. And so they've been off. They've been far off, but now they've been brought near by the blood, by the sacrifice, by the, by the humble, meek sacrifice of Jesus. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he has taken between Gentile and Jew, he has taken what stood between them and removed it in his death so that we could be one and have peace. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And this has obvious implications for you and has implications for me as we consider what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus as his people, as, if you will, an army of peacemakers. And I wanna just kind of run down five things that I found in scripture that really, the things that we're called to as we become an army of God's peacemakers. And the first is that we would be and that we would see ourselves as sons of God. So to follow Jesus as a peacemaker is to take on the family resemblance. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall what? They shall become sons of God. They shall become children of God. They shall become sons and daughters of God. They shall become heirs of the king. Now often when my, especially when my little girls were young and I would meet someone who knew one of my daughters. Like they met one of my daughters first before they ever met me. And then I would come and they would see me and they go, oh, you must be Emma's dad. Or you must be Hallie's dad. Even, even before they met me and knew what my name was, just because our faces were so similar. They had, they had inherited a resemblance to me that was obvious. Now as they get older and more beautiful, of course, they look more and more like Carrie. So that's a good thing, right? And just as our children take on our physical appearance, just as they take on our physical resemblance, they even... Many of our kids act and talk like us. Many of our kids walk like us. They, they do the same kinds of things we do. So in the same way, peacemakers take on Jesus's family resemblance. We become, as we make peace, sons of God. And along with this, when we're adopted into God's family, when, we're, when we put our faith in Jesus, we, are, we become sons and daughters of the king. We're adopted into his family and he endows us with, if you will, a partnership in the family business. And what's the family business? Well, it's peacemaking. So God says, come and be my kids and as you, as you do, I'll put your name on the truck. Jesus or, I guess Jesus and brothers or God and sons and daughters. Uh, Anyway, Peacemaking Inc., LLC or whatever. The, The family business is peacemaking. 
We, we will be called sons and heirs, descendants, children, daughters of God as we embody, as we imitate, as we partner with the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, in his divinely important work of peacemaking. And as we take up this work, we grow more and more into the family likeness. The more that we make peace, the more we look like Jesus. The more we look like Jesus, the more we will be peacemakers. We are to be sons and daughters of the king. Secondly, we are to pursue glorifying God in conflict. I think I've said this recently, but Satan spends a lot of time in church. And perhaps more time than we spend in church or with the church. He's sneaky. He's busy, and wherever human beings are gathered together with the express intention of serving and worshiping God, Satan will be busy, and there will be conflict. He loves to sow discord. He loves to create division. He is a thief. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. And relationships in a fallen world are marked by conflict. It's inevitable in the world, and it's sad. I dare say it's even shameful when those same conflicts make their way into the church and we just mimic the world in how we live together as the church. But much to Satan's chagrin, in every instance of conflict... Every time there's an argument or a division or, or a disagreement between God's people, God always provides an opportunity to obey him and to glorify him. This is the thesis of a, of a wonderful book I would recommend to everyone called The Peacemaker. It's not a hard one to remember. By a man named Ken Sandy. The thesis of the book is simply that, that every conflict offers an opportunity to glorify God. And if you think about it, that's the ironic beauty of conflict. Every conflict carries within itself the possibility of reconciliation, the possibility of restoration, the possibility of peace, the possibility of forgiveness, the possibility of repentance, the possibility of growth, and at by God's grace, if peace is pursued through conflict, God gets the glory. And when he gets the glory, we get, to, we get to enjoy the fruits of that peace, which are peace, obviously, and love, and joy, and many other things. Peacemaking itself requires conflict. If there's no conflict, we can't make peace. So to be peacemakers requires conflict, and most people who have a heart for peacemaking hate conflict. How many of you hate conflict? How many of you love peace? Okay, so we hate conflict, we love peace. So there's an issue here. Because what we tend to do, because we love peace and we want to avoid conflict, we want to be peacemakers, we end up becoming peace fakers. And we don't really deal with conflict. We maybe smooth it over, or we ignore it, meaning we ignore the person we're in conflict with, or we brush it under the rug. We, we kind of hide it away in the corner and hope nobody will notice it and it won't come up and ruin our dinner party. When we fake peace, we don't address actual difficult concepts and topics like sin and responsibility and accountability and repentance and restitution, all these things that are important for peace to be made. But true peacemaking, in distinction from peace faking, actually takes a risk 
because it knows that true peace is only found when one or more people are willing to actually carry a burden on themselves. When one or more people are willing to lay down their right to be right, their right to get what they deserve, and begin to carry a burden of sin, begin to carry someone else's sin on their shoulders, begin to practice confession, begin to forgive even when it's the most difficult thing to do. True peace can only happen when God intervenes with his grace and it can only happen when we take a step of faith into that grace. Peacemaking requires us to trust that God is good and that he wants peace. So peacemaking then, it's it's an act of service. It's something that we do by laying down in meekness our own rights, uh, laying down our need to win, our need to have justice and putting that in God's hands. And it requires then a certain amount of death to self, which is precisely why meek people make the best peacemakers. Because meek people are willing to take the blows, even when they're undeserved. They're willing to take the smear on their reputation. They're willing to take the anger and the insults that come as you navigate through conflict so that others might experience true peace. Glorify God in conflict. Third, what that takes, true peacemaking takes, makes us, calls us, I should say, to pursue peace. So those who would be peacemakers must pursue relationship even when they don't want to, even when it's hard. And this may be the, the primary call for us today as believers, that we, have, we all have relationships that we can think of where there's conflict, where there's broken relationship, when there's, when there's, where there's some hard feelings or something going on there that, that is, that's come between you and someone else. You can all think of those things. And the call for you this morning is probably move toward that person. That's it. Move toward them. Pick up the phone. Set up a meeting. Take them a meal. Make movement towards them. Pursuing peace requires us to move into relationship even when it's hard. Now, when we, when we fail to see that the church is our family, When we don't see the church as the family of God, as brothers or sisters who've been brought by God's grace undeservedly and adopted into God's family, when we don't recognize that, then we will fail to uphold the truth that our relationships are of utmost importance in the church. They're the things that we should guard with our very lives. So when we look at the church... We will fail to discern that the church is God's family and then it becomes really easy just to bail on the church, to dip out on relationships when they get hard. We don't live in a world in which peace and reconciliation is as high a value as our own preferences or our own feelings. And when those things get put above relationship and God's value for unity and peace, when we approach church in that way with our preferences and our feelings up here, then we approach it as consumers, not as brothers and sisters. I approach you as a consumer. I approach you as someone who might be a product for me to enjoy or not. 
who, who I see, I begin to see you as a thing or a commodity rather than a brother or a sister. You see, for a consumer, a church is nothing more than a restaurant. And, and you can go to a restaurant or you cannot go to a restaurant. You can frequent a restaurant or you can choose something different. But to choose one restaurant over another or one church of another is simply then a matter of taste or a matter of convenience or a matter of preference. It's not usually a matter of relationship. But brothers and sisters, the church is not a restaurant. The church is not Walmart. The church is the family of God. So, so if I don't like the service or the food at McDonald's, I can choose to go to Taco Bell or to Dairy Queen or take your pick. In the end, that's my right and my choice as a consumer. But if I don't like the service and the food at my house, contrary to fact, by the way, the service and the food are both amazing. If I don't like the service or the food at my house, it's a whole different ballgame, right? Right? All of a sudden, I'm invested in the relationships that come with that. I can't just start going to dinner every night at someone else's house because the food and the service are better there. I have to figure out how to make it work. And to do that, I have to move towards my family. I will likely have to swallow my pride. Sometimes I'll have to die to my preferences. And when things get tense, when things get hard, I will have to pursue repentance and confession and difficult conversations and reconciliation. And when I do that, guess what happens? The food gets better. And I'm dead serious. When we're in right relationship, everything tastes better. Everything is more joyful and more peaceful and more beautiful because of the peace that Jesus brings to us. See, peacemakers don't just let peace happen by default. They seek peace, they pursue it. And as James said, when that happens, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's easy to quit on the church. Super easy in our society, in our culture today. It's easy to quit on the church, but this is not God's way. True peacemakers, people who want to follow Jesus as disciples who make peace, will pull up their bootstraps and do the hard work of relationship because they understand that the church is their family rather than a product. Peacemaking takes work and it takes effort. Let's pursue peace and let's also make it a priority to build up the body. Because when we, when we pursue peace, we're intentionally working towards building up the body of Christ, the church of Christ for his glory. This is from Ephesians 4, which uh, Dave read earlier. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been called. Walk in a way, live in such a way that it reflects worthily upon the gospel. That it's a right picture of Jesus, your savior and your king. Walk in such a way, Paul says, I have, guess what? I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I've been in jail. I'm gonna get my head cut off soon because I've walked in a manner worthy of Christ Jesus in the gospel. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Where does that start? It starts with all humility and gentleness, with meekness. Begin with meekness. Begin with putting yourself 
beneath other people with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What does it look like to live in a way worthy of the gospel? It looks like being a meek person who pursues peace in God's church. Why? Why is this so important? Well, here's why. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. God is one. And we reflect his beautiful unity as we live in peace with each other and pursuing the building up of the body. Now, one of the reasons I think conflict arises in the church is because we are an insanely diverse group of people who oftentimes have nothing in common except our connection to Jesus. Now, as human beings, we like to be around people that are like us. Would you agree? We like to move towards people with the same, that look the same, that have the same background, that speak the same language, that like the same things, that have the same opinions, values, etc. I mean, look, look at a church picnic, right? How do we group up? We group with people we know that are like us. Sometimes we, we pull other people in, but oftentimes we go for what's safest. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and the beauty of Ephesians chapter two, which I read a little bit earlier, is that people who have nothing in common are brought together in the church where the only thing we have to have in common and the only thing that matters that we have in common is our King, Jesus Christ. We have him in common and that is enough. He has torn down every division between us. He has torn down everything that should should cause division or tension or conflict in the church, and he's created a new people. I'm often amazed, we have five kids, and I'm often amazed at how uniquely God has created every single one of our kids. They were born to the same mom, the same dad, they've grown up in the same house with the same values, and they are completely different. Sometimes all that they have in common is that we have the same last name, we live in the same house, and we share the same blood. God has created a beautiful diversity in my own house that I can see that these parents, all that they have in common is our connection with each other. But there's diversity there and it's beautiful. Now, we all are adopted into God's family. Now, homes with foster children and and adopted children face unique challenges of diversity because there's there's, there's even so much more that we don't have in common. And in the church, we really have nothing in common except for Jesus. So what happens in the church is we pursue peace, is that the body is built up into health and wholeness as we together take on resemblance to Jesus. So let me read a little bit more in Ephesians chapter four. Till we all attain, verse 13, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we are different as we seek peace, as we, as we seek to keep unity in our differences, as the spirit works in us, he will build the body up so that we as the church look like and resemble Jesus. 
And the final thing is that we're to follow the Spirit because we do not, friends, we do not have power in ourselves to be peacemakers. We do not have the power in ourselves to be peacemakers, but peacemaking is part of our new identity. For those who follow Jesus, for those who are members of the body of Christ, who are called sons and daughters of God, we have been given the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 14 to 17 tells us that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God has given his Holy Spirit to the sons of God. The driving force behind our peacemaking is the spirit of the living God. He's the fuel and the energy and the empowerment behind our peacekeeping. So as impossible as it is, impossible as it feels in your mind and your heart to move towards that person you're in conflict with and to bring peace, as impossible as it feels, the spirit of God, the spirit of peace makes it possible. The spirit of God is the spirit of peace and he is working in us. He's working in his church. He's working in his temple to build up the body of Christ. The Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel made his wealth from the invention and the sale of dynamite, which was an invention that he actually envisioned ending all war. But just as the cult peacemaker ended conflict through violence or through the threat of violence, Nobel's invention brought greater, greater destruction than he'd ever realized. And so hoping to make amends, he left in his will a fortune to establish several international prizes, the Nobel Prizes, and the, the most famous is the Nobel Peace Prize. And as honored as that prize is in our world, as honored as the, the work and the organizations and the individuals that are acknowledged through that prize, we as believers must recognize that our work of peacemaking is even greater than all of that. Bringing true peace to the world through Jesus Christ. So what does that actually look like for you and I to be peacemakers who pursue true peace? And I think we go back to the three ways that Jesus made peace. First of all, it is our role to pursue peace between God and people. And so in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he's a minister of reconciliation. His job is to plead to everyone that they would be at peace, that they would be reconciled to God. God has given us the message of the gospel, the message of salvation that Jesus Christ, who was perfect God, became a human, lived a perfect life, and died a death, took on the violence of our sin, and paid a punishment so that by faith in him, we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. He's done that work of peace and that's the message we have for the world. So what's our role in that? We take that message. We embody that message. We live that message out in a world that doesn't understand it or recognize it. We, we speak and proclaim that message in our, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, at our parks, in our skate parks, and in those restaurants that we go to all the time. 
We take that message of peace. This is called evangelism. You can call it the the message of reconciliation. Call it what you want. But we are to be a people who go and take God's gospel to a world so that people can be at peace with him for eternity. And the consequences of not doing that are eternal as well. So we pursue peace between God and people. Secondly, we can meekly pursue peace in people's hearts. So we've spent 15, 16 months living in a way that none of us has ever had to live in our entire life in the midst of a global pandemic. It's been hard. Do you agree? It's been a difficult year and a half almost. And it's left many of us paralyzed in fear. It's uh, left many of us in anxiety, wrestling with depression, pushed many people into mental illness, trauma, suicidality, addiction. And, And as a church, as a people of God, it's right for us to grieve that. It's it's right for us to grieve how this thing has affected us. Because none of us has gone through this unaffected. And over the past couple months, I've just been processing and processing with leadership and really talking about what does it look like to help our people process this last 15, 16 months, to really, to really work through it and take to God, God, this is my pain. This is my anxiety. This is, this is my trauma. This is my loneliness. This is what I'm, I'm working through and bring that to God. And it's, all, it's good for us to grieve that. It's good for us to lament the difficulties of this season and to move towards others for their sake. Dean prayed this earlier. Is there someone that you haven't seen at church in a while? Is there someone you haven't seen in 15 months? Think about calling them. If you don't use phones, text them. Think about reaching out to someone who might be experiencing loneliness, who might be, who might be by themselves, who may just be struggling because of what's happened. Visit someone, move towards people. To be peacemakers is to pursue peace for people in their hearts and in their souls. Finally, meekly pursuing peace between people, and I think specifically between us as a church. So again, in light of the past 15 months, our, our society, our culture has been marked not only by a pandemic, but by deep, deep, deep divisions over a number of issues, and many of them serious. We've, we've taken sides. We've gotten angry. Sometimes it's effectively, or, or, or effect, it's affected our relationships, even effectively ended important relationships. Some of you are tentative to even have a conversation with someone at church lest you stir up a conflict and anxiety because of differing opinions on the virus or on face masks or on politics or on vaccines. And so we have to understand that we we cannot deny that our relationships have been seriously affected over the past year and a half. And it hasn't helped that for much of that we've had to be separate from each other. There's division. As elders, we've had to make some decisions in how to lead. Many of those decisions have been unpopular. People have left the church and gone elsewhere. Others have checked out from church altogether. Some of you sitting here have strongly disagreed with us 
on some of the things we've done. Now, no doubt there's been misunderstanding, anger, division, and as an elder, I'm here to say, we tried to do the best we could with what we had and what we knew, and we may have gotten a lot of things wrong. <laughs> like, you need to hear that from us, you know? We don't stand up here in our righteousness saying, you know what, we did all this right unless you get in line with our opinions then you can't be here. Don't hear that from us at all. What we did is we, sit, we sought to follow Jesus and what we thought he wanted us to do in our leadership. And we know that what that's created is division and disagreement and hard feelings. So the saddest thing about that though for me is when we refuse to talk about it. When we refuse to bring up something that we disagree with or I'm angry about this and I haven't approached someone about it, it's difficult to speak with someone you disagree with. Would you agree? Some of you, like Mark Gaddy, love doing that. <laughs> but for most of us, it's difficult. It's difficult to enter into a conversation with someone we know is on the other side of a, of a divide of opinion. And so oftentimes we fake the peaks. We don't address it, we don't bring it up. Just as an example, I had a, a friend, a brother in Christ several years ago approach me and said, hey, a couple years ago you said this in a sermon. He told me what I had said. He said, what did you mean by that? And I said, well, that was like three years ago, but let me give you my best take on what I probably meant by it. And he said, oh, this whole time I've been thinking you meant something else and I've held it against you for like three years. We do that. Brothers and sisters, we do that with each other. Someone says something, we take it wrong, and we, we, go in our, we go to our own echo chamber, and we begin to process it and make things up and assume things about them, and we hold something against someone that shouldn't be there, that shouldn't be there if we would just pursue people, if we would move towards people and have these difficult conversations, say, you know what, you did this and this is how it made me feel and I just wanna bring that to you and tell you I'm hurt. I can't address that, I can't pursue peace if I don't know. You can't pursue peace if you don't know that you have hurt someone's feelings or created division between us. Brothers and sisters, we have to do better. We have to move towards each other even when it's hard, why? Because that's what peacemakers, that's what sons and daughters of the king do. I'm actually asking God in my prayers to give us a season of peacemaking, a season of conversation, a season of healing, a, a season of restoration over the remainder of this year, which will take more than just prayer, but it won't take less. We have to pray. It will take hard work, it will take hard conversations. And as elders, I know for me, I know these other elders are moving towards people. We are working to move towards you, to ask you how you are doing. How has this last year and a half affected you? How can we help, how can we love you? Is there anything between us that we need to talk through and engage with, to engage you, to hear from you, and get your feedback and work through to peace with you? But it's not just the elders who have to take up this kind of work, it's all of us. So instead of shying away from each other, instead of disappearing out the back door, instead of harboring hatred or anger or misunderstanding, we have to move towards one another in love. 
So will you join me? Will you join me in being peacemakers and moving towards your brothers and sisters, engaging in difficult conversations with people you don't agree with, calling and pulling people back into fellowship and relationship for the sake of peace and for the glory of Christ? Will you join me? Let's pray for that. Would you stand with me as I close in prayer? Father, we do stand before you and we are humbled, we are meek. God, if we're not meek, make us meek. Make us humble before you, God, because we are broken. We do not have it all figured out. We do not have all the answers and when we think we do, we're we're wrong. And so we confess that to you, Lord. We confess that we've harbored, um, maybe we've harbored anger towards another. Maybe we've allowed a root of bitterness to Uh, to to grow up in our hearts toward another. Maybe we've held resentment towards a brother or a sister in Christ. God, maybe we've faked peace. Maybe we've tried to sweep it under the rug or, 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 or just smooth it over or walk away from a relationship, Lord, but I don't think that that's the heart. I don't think that's your heart in all of this. You've called us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In all humility and gentleness, God, we would want to walk that road of peacemaking with each other under your guidance and the power of your spirit. So draw us into it, God, we pray. God, I ask your spirit to do the work that we cannot do, even giving us the desire to be people who make peace. Would you unite this body and strengthen it and grow it up to look like Jesus in this community because of the depth of love we have for you and for each other? God, would you glorify yourself in this church, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus.